Alright, so you ever have something that a parent or some sort of person in your life has said to you and it just stuck with you the rest of your life and it kind of helped you you know, view the world? Ever have something like that? A little story or a little something like it? No? Okay, well, I have. I mean, this is... I, I can only go as far as you guys interact with me. So when, when Jim says... Um, you guys know what apologetics is, and like one or two people raise their hand. I'm thinking we just went over this last week, so you know, um, very short term. <laughs> so, um, but my dad told me this story a long time ago. Um, he was a ju- in junior high, and he had this new teacher that came in, and this new teacher taught history, um, and they were learning American history, and so they were given brand new textbooks. And they started going through this, these textbooks, and about halfway through the year, the, the teacher was so tired of the book that he told the students, look, I have a degree in specifically in American history, and I haven't, heur- I haven't heard or read half of what's in this book. And it came to find out that the publisher had made up American history, and it started attributing different things to different people that weren't even real people. And so they finally got rid of the book. And I remember hearing that story and thinking, man, I really need to make sure that what I read or what I hear is actually true, you know. And so I was doing um, a little study of my own into American history, and specifically the faith that led to um, the founding of of our country. And just to see, if you go back and just read some of the sermons uh, 50, 60 years before 1776, and just look at what was being preached and talked about during that time, and you can just see the Constitution, you can just see the Bill of Rights um, through that, that discourse. And so as I was going through this, I, I came upon this little um, bit of information that they, after George Washington died, they created, or someone wrote a biography. And at the beginning of this biography, at the foreword, they had interviews with different people that actually knew him. And so they used this biography as a textbook for American history for the next almost 100 years. And in the early 1900s, that foreword, or that whole book was republished except without the foreword. Well, what's interesting about that foreword and all the people that talked in it, it was heavily um, talked about George Washington's faith and how that really um, made who he was. And so to understand the rest of his story, the rest of his life, you have to understand his rootedness in the Scriptures and his rootedness in Christ. And when you take that out, it, it makes the rest of his life seemed like it was him that did everything. And so it was just interesting that this happened. And then this was all brought to the surface in my mind. I don't know how many of you have been following that Kyle Rittenhouse um, jury, uh, the whole court case this week, uh, the past two weeks. And I was just really interested um, because there was this one person that was being, that was on the stand and they start, the prosecutor was asking him questions and he flat out says, you asked me to change my testimony in this written thing. And it was this really big, like, I was watching some 
some lawyers who were commenting on it, and they just lost it. They're like, oh my goodness, what? Like, this is a huge thing. That this that these lies were were okay. Like these these prosecutors wanted this person to change their story, and then it came out on the stand, you know. And it was what? Yeah, yeah. It was like, oh my goodness. And so, um, but um, so it was just crazy because that creates in our society this hyper skepticism that we have of everything, right? You look on your phone, or you look on news, or you look on anywhere, and you always have to ask the question, is this true? Right? Because you can't trust anything anymore. You can't, you see a headline, and that headline says, you know, you know, people are invading the United States, and you find out later, you know, it's, it's this, right? Or you, it's the Canadians, they're coming back. Um, you know, it's, you, you know, but it's, you, you read these headlines, and they're just like these crazy headlines. You're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that's happening. And then you find out six months later that it's, that's not true. You know, and so in our society, everyone questions everything except the things that they already think is true. And then that never gets questioned. And so we've been talking about um, in our... Here in our, we're in our second week of this apologetics, and this is why you guys should know what apologetics is, because we talked about it last week. Um, but we're in our second week of apologetics, where we're going to be talking about, is the Bible reliable? Because a lot of people, this is the big question I always get, is, I can't trust the Bible. You know, how do I trust the Bible? It's been made by a bunch of men, you know, over centuries. How can we actually trust it? You know, and it's because of this hyper-skepticism that we have, the the whole society looks at the scriptures and say it can't be true. And so that's what we're doing in our, 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 our fall series here. We're talking about three questions that every Christian should be able to answer when someone asks them. And that is the basis of apologetics. It's, are you ready, when someone asks you a question, to share why you believe in Jesus? And so last week... We started with the first question, which is, is Jesus historical? This is a question I get from time to time where people say, well, Jesus wasn't even a real person. And so if you have your notes, this will be all up there. Um, And so is Jesus even a real person? And we talked about how there's scholars called mythicists that they, they put forth this idea that Jesus was just simply a myth that was made up by people. And he's just a conglomeration of a bunch of other ideas. And so last week we went through three of the four arguments, and they, just as a recap, are very simple. It's Jesus, is his story is just based on other ancient stories. So we showed how we went through one of them. We went through the story of Osiris, and we went and talked about the, the actual story of the resurrection and how they're not the same, how, in fact, they're very different. And so that argument is out the door because when you actually take Jesus' story and you compare it to these other religions, Jesus' story is completely different. The second argument that we talked about was this idea of Jesus isn't mentioned in the historical writings of the Romans. And so first we showed how that's false. We showed several that where he is mentioned, but also the understanding that just for Jesus to be mentioned is actually really important. Because Jesus is just a 
first century backwater Jew if we're putting it into the perspective of Rome. Rome doesn't think anything about Jesus. And so for them to even mention Jesus is actually a huge thing. Because they don't mention every single person that's out there. They mention people that they think need to be mentioned, and Jesus is one of those. And so it's actually more important that he is mentioned than he isn't, and so he is. The other argument that we talked about was this idea that there's no archaeological evidence for Jesus. And what we mean by that is there's no rock that says Jesus was here. You know, he didn't tag the side of the, you know, Jupiter's temple, you know. And so because of that, people say, well, he's not a real historical figure. And the reality is, how many historical figures have done that? Well, not very many. You know, when we see busts of people where they show their face and everything, that's, they didn't do that. Other people did that for them. You know, and so these ideas that you have to have something that the person wrote in order for them to be a real historical person is, is ludicrous, really. Yet, Jesus, when you read about Jesus, he fits the, the first century Jewish world. I mean, to a T. His words, his mannerisms, his actions, his clothing, everything about Jesus is first century Judaism. And that's huge to understand because that puts Jesus into a historical setting. And so things like, there's actually a gospel called the Gospel of Thomas. And if you read that gospel, you'll see a completely different Jesus. You'll see a Greek Jesus. A person that speaks like a Greek, acts like a Greek, clucks like a Greek, you know. And so he is completely Greek. That's not who Jesus is. He, that person would not fit that time period. And so... Jesus fits the archaeological evidence. And so we went through these three things. And so we took this away. Is Jesus a historical person? Yes. And as believers, we need to walk people through the history and be able to do that. Because once we're able to do that, I've never had someone say, well, I still don't believe. Usually it turns to another thing, and usually it's the next question, which is the fourth argument from the mythicists. And we're making this its an entire own little thing because it's so big. Okay, This next question that we're going to cover today is, is the Bible reliable? Okay? Very simple. Is the Bible reliable? And what we're doing from this is we're only looking at a his, from a historical standpoint. right? These first two are from a historical standpoint. Because we can actually go in and answer this several different ways. One of those being prophecy. And that is a historical component, but we want to stick right now to just the history, all right? Because for a lot of people, they're like, well, I don't, I don't give any credence to anything in the Bible. So can we rely on the Bible as it is in your hand, okay? And that's what we're going to talk about. And by doing this, I want, to see, want you to see how prolific and how important answering this question is. This is the number one question I get from people. From people that I have encountered with, is the Bible reliable is the number one question. And it's so big that I want to give you a couple of people in society that ask this question. Now, a lot of times we can look at politicians and say, well, politicians, you know, they kind of move our society in certain ways. And I would say they're just 
they're second tier when it comes to culture. The first tier that influences our culture are people like musicians, actors, in that industry, social media people, that those type of people are the ones that move culture. And so I want to share two quotes for you today to show you a couple of people who influence culture. And the first one, his name's Dave Cross, and you might not know that name. I didn't know that name, but I know who it is because when I looked him up, have you ever watched the Chipmunk movie? Yes. Okay. Well, if you have, the very first movie, well, he's in several of the movies, but the very first movie, he is the bad guy. Okay? He is the, the evil um, music guy. Okay? But he's also a, a comedian, and he pops up every once in a while in different shows. Okay? I want you know, the first, first service, they knew him. They're like, oh, yeah, that guy. Okay? So you don't need to know him, but you need to hear what he has to say on this subject because this is something that is an, a person that's an influencer that affects other people. So I'm going to give you this first one. So his name's Dave Cross, and this is what he said. Back when the Bible was written, then edited, then rewritten, then rewritten, then re-edited, then translated from dead languages, then retranslated, then edited, then rewritten, then given to kings for them to take their favorite pa parts, then rewritten, then rewritten, re-rewritten, then translated again, then given to the Pope for him to approve, then rewritten, then edited again, then re-re-re-rewritten again, all based on stories that were told orally 30 to 90 years after they happened to people who didn't know how to write. So, so this is a view of what the Bible is. People in our society view the Bible as simply a document that has been so edited that it is completely different than the original. Okay? So we'll deal with that claim, but we need to understand that that's one view out there. Okay, the other one I want to share with you is from a guy named Joe Rogan. Now, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, um, but he has the number one podcast, and I know... I know liberals that listen to him. I know conservatives who listen to him. I know Christians that listen to him. I know non-Christians. Um, I even read an article by Christian. I believe it was by Christianity Today, who looked at Rogan and said Christians need to be more like his interview style, so they need to listen and be able to interact because that's how he does. Okay, I want to share with you what this very popular podcaster says on this subject and there's some explicit 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 you know there's bad words um and so here it is he says the new testament was written by constantine who was a blank roman emperor who wasn't even christian he didn't even believe it he became a christian on his deathbed that's when he became a christian the New Testament is utter horse blank. It's created by a bishop and a blank emperor. That's a fact. It's established religious fact. Everyone knows where it comes from. And not only that, it was written hundreds of years after the death of Jesus. And so this is another view of the Bible. That it is just made up. That it is brought... Uh, right, but, so, but we're focusing on... The, the Bible part. Because people can accept that Jesus was a historical figure and still not accept the Bible. No, that's not what he's saying. He does, 
but that's that's completely off what we're talking about. So, but in this, he's one of these people that believes that you can't trust the Bible, and the way he says it is because it was produced by Constantine hundreds of years afterwards. And so, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at that claim and show how both are wrong, right? But first, we need to put this into perspective. We need to put history into perspective because so often with history, people just expect that things have always been the way they are, right? How do you today, and this is an open question, how do you get information? The internet, right? TV, some books, some newspapers, if that's a lot, other people, podcasts. But let's be honest, most of us wake up in the morning and we grab this and we're like, okay, what's going on today, right? A lot of our stuff comes from media, right? What's going on? Where, what's going on in our nation? What's going on locally? We're trying to figure it out. But we all get our information really quick, right? And there's so much information that how do you sift through it all, right? What do you do to go, okay, this is good information, this is bad information, when it's just, I mean, there is so much information out there that any, any of us in here could start a, a blog or we could start a vlog or we could start any type of social media and add to the information that's out there. Even right now, because of COVID, we started doing the, the streaming, right? So we're adding to that information that's out there. And there is just, uh, there's so much information, not, no, any, no one, uh, no one of us, there we go, um, could actually sift through all of it, right? And people think that's how it is, that that's how history is. And the reality is history is not like that. History is very, very small that we have from history. And the further you go back, the smaller it gets about how much information we have. And I want to give you a snapshot on manuscripts today, okay? Because we're talking about the Bible, and we're talking about the Bible is a historical document as far as it's been in history, right? So I wanted us to see comparatively how the Bible stands against other historical manuscripts. And I'm going to give you five examples today, okay? There's actually a ton more, but I think five's good enough, okay? So... We're going to go through, and we're going to give you five examples. So the first one's Plato. Okay, you guys know who Plato is? Right? Remember last week I said he's not the, not the dough? Right? Okay. Okay, well, you didn't remember um, apologetics, so I don't know what you guys remember. So, so he has this, um, uh, this book, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher these names. Because I'm, as you can tell, I'm not very good at English. So when we start talking about other things, I'm not very good. Um, anyways, so the tetralogy, uh, oh my goodness, tetralogies, yes, that. Um, so he writes his book, and he writes it around his, you know, so around the late 400s, early 300s. Okay, so we're talking BCs, right? So we're talking, we're, we're going down. But somewhere around this time period, he writes this book. And we only have seven manuscripts. And when I use the term manuscripts today, I'm going to use it as a general term, as both fragments and full copies. Okay? So that's how I'm using it. Right? So 
out of this book, we only have seven manuscripts. That's not a lot. Okay? And the earliest we have them is 900 AD. Okay? Now, if you put your mathematician hat on, that's roughly 13 to 1400 years after the fact. Okay? So somewhere in there. All right? So put that into your perspective. The next one comes from um, a student of his, Aristotle, and he writes this Ode to Poetics, and he, or what we have of his, is about 49 manuscripts, right? Got that, Carol? He's got 49 manuscripts up there. And what you can see there is the earliest we have his are 1100 AD, right around then. Okay, I'm using all round numbers to make it easier for us, okay? Um, and so, what's that? About another 1,400, 1,500 years later, right? Somewhere in there. All right? So, trust trying to put everything into perspective. Now, here's another guy. And his name is Thucydides. And he is, he is called, um, by the Encyclopedia Britannica, he's called the greatest of all Greek historians. Okay? So, this is an important person, historically. Out of his writings, we only have nine surviving manuscripts. Okay? And again, it's from the 900s. Right? So, writing around the same time, 400 BC, somewhere in there. Okay? So, again, what's that? Well, 1400 years, right? Somewhere around there. Okay? So, here's another one. Let's move forward in time to Livy. Livy is a Roman historian writing in the first century BC, so those zero, right? between 0 and 100 B.C., all right, he is said to have written 142 books on, the Roman, on Roman history up to that point. That's a lot, right? Okay, only 35 of those books survive, and they're contained within 20 manuscripts. Okay? And the earliest we have is 300 A.D., so right there you have about three to four hundred years, roughly. That's the earliest, right? That's pretty good so far, right? When the other ones are 1,400 years, to have 300 years, that's pretty good, right? Okay, let's do the last one, and this is Julius Caesar. Everyone know who Julius Caesar is? Yeah, he's the guy that has the, um, you know, the casino, right? Yeah? Everyone knows Julius Caesar. They should, okay? So he wrote this thing called the Gaelic Wars, right? So he's writing in that first century-ish time. The earliest we have of his, or the most we have of his is 10 manuscripts. And again, it's the earliest one is about 900 AD. So again, you're looking at about a thousand years, Right? So we've got to put this into perspective before we get to the New Testament because if we don't, then we just assume that we have all this information from the ancient world when in reality we don't. A lot of what we know is, very, is based on very slim information. And so we need to understand that because when we get to the New Testament, you're going to see how it's so much different. All right? And if you want information about this, I, I post all of my sermons online just so people can access. So I put down where I get all this information. Um, and so it's going to be up there. All right, It's going to be on our Facebook. 
So, but we need to put this in perspective. So now that we have that, let's deal with the claims, right, that we talked about. So the first claim, and we're going to focus on the New Testament because most people do. So the first claim is this, right? Constantine compiled the New Testament. Okay, this was from Joe Rogan. So Constantine compiled the um, New Testament. And so when did Constantine live? Anyone know? Real quick. Somewhere around 380. There you go. Okay, so he's around 300 A.D., and he calls, he becomes a Christian. The story goes, he becomes a Christian. He takes over as emperor, eventually taking over the whole of the Roman Empire, and he calls a council together, and that council is called, anyone know? Council, yeah, Council of Nicaea. So it's in May of 325, he calls this council, and I love the story of this council because it says that the bishops that attended, some of those bishops still had the scars from the previous, one of the previous um, emperors and their persecution. And they come to this place with these scars on their back. And it's just a beautiful thing. Um, you know, those council, I love the council stories because one of them has to deal with um, Santa Claus smacking another bishop. It's just great. Um, there's just so much interesting stuff. If you've never read information about the councils, there are just some crazy stories that come out of that. Anyways, um, so he calls this council together in 325. This is when he's supposedly making the, the bringing this together, right? And making the New Testament. So the question is, or the really the, the reality is, if we can find anything prior to that that gives us a New Testament, it blows that out of the water, right? Do you think we have something? Yes, because I wouldn't be doing this if we didn't. Come on, people. I mean, come on. So this is called, and I'm going to mess up this guy's name. He is uh, Italian. Okay, His name is, here we go, Ludovico Antonio Moratori. That's, that's pretty good. All right. Um, so he, he's living in the 1700s, and he happens upon this fragment that has been, um, eventually it's called the Muratorian Canon. Okay? And this second century fra um, fragment, so when's the second century? So when we do centuries, right, it's, we're in the 21st century? Okay, so, we're, but it's the 20s. So last century was the 20th century, but we were in the 19th. So second century is the 100s, right? That's pretty early, right? 100. The Bible is said to, all the letters are written between 45 and 90 A.D., okay? That's when the Bible is supposed to be written, the New Testament, okay? So we're talking about not that far later, you know, the next century, Right? That's 200 years before Constantine. We have to realize that. Okay? This is what it is. It is a list of the accepted scripture within the, the more Western church, what they would normally read. Okay? And guess what it contains? Almost every single book that you have in your New Testament, except for three. And let's talk about those three real quick. It doesn't have Second Peter, okay? But there might be a reason why, because in the list, it just is the revelation of Peter. What's that mean? It could be one and two, right? Because they didn't differentiate between the, the first and second part, right? And so it might just be a catch-all. 
So it might be there. The second one is Hebrews. Okay. Maybe why why do you think it might not be there? Well, there's actually a really good reason. Because the majority of Paul's letters, when they would be sent out, they're sent out as a whole. And guess where Hebrews was? They're at it's at the back, but it's there. And so they would just refer to it as the Pauline letters. So it could be there, just be because it's just part of the Pauline letters. So that's part of it. Okay, so you might have those two in there. And the last one is James. And James isn't included in this list. And there might be two reasons why this might not be included as well. One, we're talking about a fragment. So we don't even have the whole document to give us the full, but we do have the majority of the books. The second thing is, James is a very Jewish book. If you've ever read James, you might go, man, this just doesn't seem to fit in the rest of the New Testament. And in fact, that's what s- several early church scholars said. They said, this just doesn't seem to fit. But if you take James and take a Hebrew book like Proverbs and you start reading them parallel to each other, there's a lot of similarities. In fact, so much so that when the church met to decide to make official canon for the church, they said, we can't leave this out. It's written by James, the, brother, the half-brother of Jesus. It's Jewish. It's got good theology. It needs to be in there. There's other reasons why as well, but it was so, so perfect by the, by the Holy Spirit that they couldn't deny it. And so, but it would also make sense that Gentile churches wouldn't, the, the Jewishness of that would stay within the Palestinian area that the Jewish ranks rather than in the Gentile ranks, which that's where the, this, can, this list comes from. It comes from the Gentile churches. And so it makes sense that it wouldn't be included. But even that, you have the majority of the New Testament already decided upon by the second century. That's huge, right? And it blows the idea that Constantine came in and just said, we're taking this one, we're taking this one, we're taking this one. And we're putting that together. It's not historically true. The New Testament, and we actually have a full New Testament by, in the 300s that's complete, that's just like yours. Okay, so during that century where he comes and he says, and that's another misconception of this council. If you actually read some of the documents of the council, yes, Constantine is looked at like as this great person because he's the first emperor that said, hey, it's okay to be a Christian. But you know what he did the whole time? He sat there and listened to these bishops talk. That's all he did. We actually have historical records from that council that you can read. And so this idea is complete historical bunk. It's just false. And so, but we need to understand this. And so let's keep going though. Second claim. All right. So now we're in the second claim. And the second claim is that the New Testament has been rewritten and rewritten, and as this guy said, re 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 rewritten, right? It just kept getting rewritten all the time. And he says it's by popes and by kings and all these different people. And so the question becomes, has it, right? Has it been done? No, it hasn't. And we can actually, historically we know this, okay? I'm going to give you the reasons why. So out of all those people, right, that we talked about earlier, 
all those manuscripts that we have from those five people, we have about 94 manuscripts, okay? And they say that that is about this high, about four foot high when you stack them all on top, okay? And that's five different historical people. And here we're talking about a, a single thing that really, if you go back into it, by the first century, it was being published, as, like sent to each other as one document. So it's basically one thing by the first century. And so, or the second century. And so, but we have 94 of those manuscripts. How many do you think we have of the New Testament? A few more. I'm going to take the same time period, right, that we talked about with those other ones, 1,400 years, okay? And we're going to apply that to the New Testament. And we're going to go a little bit less. We're going to do 1,000, okay, 1,000 years. In the first 1,000 years, how many manuscripts do we have? We have 5,000 Greek manuscripts, okay? So in the original language, we have 5,000 Greek manuscripts. That's a few more than 94, okay? I'm not the best mathematician. I know certain things, right? Okay? And 20,000 additional languages. Not 20,000 languages, but 20,000 manuscripts in additional languages. Like Coptic, you have um, Aramaic, you have Latin. These other languages that are around in that time period with 20,000 additional copies. So how many do we have in that 1,000 years? We have 25,000 manuscripts. That should blow your mind. Well, yeah. And so usually the, the, the practice was someone would get sent a letter, a church would get sent a letter, and maybe they would copy that and send it to the next one. And so this language, this, um, these documents would go out Sometimes they would just send off the letter and it would go out. And over time, letters deteriorate, so they needed to copy it. Yeah, it really is. And so that should, right there, we have enough manuscripts to help us understand that this is what it is. But even if we didn't have those 25,000 manuscripts, we would still have the New Testament. Because once you start reading the early church leaders, um, there's one right off the top of my head named, uh, it's called First Clement, okay? This guy is supposed to be like, you have Paul and then Clement takes over in Rome later on. And so he writes his, and people like Clement would quote the New Testament. And so you have 32,000 quotes from these early church leaders. And just by their quotes alone, you would have a New Testament. Think about that. You don't even need the manuscripts. You have the quotes, and then you can take them and say, that's what we have today. That should, like, there's so much here. So much. It, it should be like a wave. It should be like, oh my goodness, we have so much information about the New Testament. So much more than any other ancient document, hands down. But the next question, okay, so we have that, but the next question needs to be, is it reliable is what was written by the apostles the same thing that was written today and so we need to know that too and so this is where people um like okay so this guy his name is daniel wallace and he he heads up this thing called the center for uh, new testament manuscripts and what they do is they go around the world and they take pictures of all the manuscripts 
and they're actually finding new ones. They'll find them in the back of things. They'll find them glued together between other ones. And they find new manuscripts. So there's manuscripts coming out all the time. And you can go to their website. It's the Center of New Testament Manuscripts, okay? And you can actually see these different uh, manuscripts. Whole manuscripts, fragments of manuscripts. And you can just look at them and just go through them. And their goal is to have all of them, every ancient source, photographed so that it can be accessible by anyone and so they're doing this all over the world and people like him and another guy uh, his name is Kenneth Boa but there's tons of other ones out there they're textual critics they actually look at the New Testament and start going through and so there's different um, numbers but basically from what I see from most of the text, textual critics, I would say that there's 94% of no difference between all these. In the sense of they're just they're the same content, they're the same structure, all that. 94%. So you have the 6% that we need to concern ourselves with. There's 3% that is about slight changes. So in this case, I heard this um, example given. How would you say Jesus loves Mary in English? How many ways could you say that and still be correct in the way of the meaning, right? So Jesus loves Mary. Mary is someone Jesus loves, right? Jesus, um, you know, how, do you, how many ways, right? And so they gave that, and so they said, there are 16 ways to say Jesus loves Mary in Greek, and they're all right. So if you wrote that and a different writer wrote the same thing, but slightly different, right? It's still the same. And so that's that 3%. And so the question is, what about the other 3%, right? And those are things like the scribe might have written on the side something. Or their pen might have moved. And so now that letter looks different. And so all these little tiny things. But also things like, so everyone know what the mark of the beast is? Okay, 666, right? This, this mark of the beast. So there's, there are manuscripts out there that have the mark of the beast as 616. Okay, now let me ask you, does that change theology? No. It might change maybe who the beast might be, right? The name. But it doesn't change the theology. And that's the huge thing. That last 3%, none of this. So everything that we've had up to this, none of it changes theology, even that 3%. And in fact, it's, such, it's so good that this guy named Kenneth Boa, he's a textual critic, he says this, the New Testament can be regarded as 99.5% pure. And the correct readings for the remaining 0.5% can often be ascertained by, with a fair degree of probability by the practice of textual criticism. In other words, looking at it and understanding. So he says only 0.5% is actually something that is concerning. And even that you can deal with by actually just reading what's going on. And so that should tell us as Christians, man, this is pretty accurate. What I have here is what was written by the apostles. Like, that should be where we are, where we come. Because we have so much historical data on this that it hands down, 
is a treasure trove. It's far beyond anything in the ancient world. And it shouldn't surprise us. If we're a believer, we should not be surprised by that. And I want to give you a couple of places in Scripture of why. Okay, so in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 6, it says, A voice cries out. Okay? It says, A voice cries out. And I said, What shall I cry? And the response is, All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. And then the, the guy says, he says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So it shouldn't surprise me that God can endure his word from when it was written by the apostles to when it's here in my hand. But that's not all. So fast forward to the New Testament to show this is all throughout Scripture. Second Timothy, this is written by Paul, Second Timothy. So he's writing to Timothy. Verse 16, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may thoroughly equip, be equipped for every good work. Why, why, is God, why is God sustained this word? So we can be thoroughly equipped. What are we doing here? We're doing apologetics so that you can be equipped to give a reason. Why? It's based on Scripture. And we should not be surprised. I want to give you one more. This comes from Jesus himself. From his very words when he was doing the Sermon on the Mount. He does this Sermon on the Mount where he says time and time again, you have heard it said, but I said. So very much this word being finalized and then at the end of it this is what he says he gives us a short parable he says therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock right on the rock the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house we could say the historians come again the myth has come down okay yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. We should not be surprised that God's word endures because God is solid, and he keeps his word enduring. And we can build our lives on it. And if we don't, we'll crash. And so, this last one, Christians can be assured, we can be assured the New Testament is just what the apostles wrote. Why? Because of everything we just talked about. And this is just one part of it. There are other parts. There's prophetic word. That God fulfills His word prophetically. You know, so we can trust that God spoke to the apostles that they what they witnessed they recorded and that's what you have right here in your hand this is why it's so important to have your scripture because this is what we base everything on every word that comes from god his word created his word sustains and then he wrote it all down and said follow and so we need to have this in our lives if we don't we're going to crash.
And so my challenge for you this week is very simple. It's three parts, okay? First part is become famil- familiarize yourself with what we've talked about. You don't need to become an expert, but you need to know. You need to have this understanding. And then where God leads you, go deeper into this. There's so much here that it, there are papers every single day written on this, this type of subject. Okay, I, I am subscribed to this one website where people publish textual criticisms almost every day because I have five or six emails every single day. Here's the new paper that's published. Here's this. There's so much information out there. And so, but here is just some simple ones for you. Okay, very easy. Easily accessible. Okay, so just familiarize yourself. But then, you got to praise God. You got to praise God this week because He endures His Word. Okay, His Word will not fall away. His Word is forever. He is sustaining it. And so, we need to praise Him for that. This is not, some, this is not a light thing. We only have 94 copies from from five people who are huge in history. And yet we have 25,000 copies of God's Word. I mean, that should, that should just blow us away. And then the final thing is, build your life on God's Word. If you're not reading, if you're not into it every single day, if you're not reading books and books and books and going back and then rereading it, you've got to get into God's Word. You've got to build your life on it. It can't be a secondary thing. It has to be, this is what it's about. Because then I build my life on His Word, I can go out and face the rest of this world. And so that's my challenge for you this week. To just get the information, kind of get used to understanding it, praising God for His sustained Word, and then go deeper. In fact, I would challenge you, take those three verses that we talked about, those three passages we talked about today, read the book. Read the chapters around it. Understand what it is in that context. And see how God says, I got my word and I'm going to keep going with it. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, how could we even begin to understand how the intricacies of how you work in history to bring about your will? I mean, it just is unfathomable. It's just completely beyond an ability to figure out. And yet you continue to do it. You continue to do great things without us realizing that you're doing them until it just gets hit into our face that you have done great things. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this week. I pray that they would be assured that your word is sustained. That you have brought your word from ancient times into our modern day and it is good. And that we can trust it and we can build our lives upon it. Father, I pray that we would, if we encounter people this week who have this question, that we'd be ready. We'd be that sharpened arrow in your quiver, ready to go whenever you call us out to do something. Move by your Holy Spirit to impact people, to bring conviction into lives so that people can be brought into your kingdom. Lord, use us as humble servants to do it as ever you wish. You are God and we are not, and we praise you for that. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word that continues today that we can rest assured is your word from the mouths of the apostles to our hands. And so, Lord, thank you. Help us to build upon your word that in all things you get the glory and we get you. Lord, thank you. 
In your son's name I pray. Amen.